Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. Um, if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, we're continuing uh, through the gospel. We'll be in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I tell Bob that this is going to be a short message, but oh, you got your watch. <laughs> but that means nothing coming from a pastor. So <laughs> I tell you that the last service went short, but that means nothing in this service. So, um, but as you're turning there, um, I'm, you know, normally Saturday night is sort of a, Saturdays are generally like a school night for me. I normally don't go out partying, but last night I was out till past midnight. We were up in Riverside. Um, George Farrington, for those of know him or don't know him, he was the pastor here for, he was here 50 years ago, I think, in the 60s, and, and uh, then retired here in the 90s, spent 20 years in retirement serving here. And then as him and Evie's health began to fail, they went to North Carolina. Um, we're having ant problems. There's one on the podium here. Well, took care of him. Um, I'm tired, so I might be a little goofy now. So we'll try, we'll try to keep it under wraps. But um, it was one of the, uh, as far as officiating weddings, it was one of the most um, like meaningful weddings I've done. Uh, George did the opening prayer, and I knew I was in trouble when I got to the point when I invited him up to pray, and I couldn't even, like, I was already bawling at that point. And uh, so I had to explain to the crowd the significance of George and Evie. George and Evie are two people um, that are like the superstars of the faith, as far as I'm concerned, that they love Jesus so zealously and for so many years. And to see the fruit of their family from walking with him, it's, it's, a, it's an honor um, for this church, um, you know, George and Evie are very much still connected to this church. Um, going back, you know, four years ago during the restart when there were, you know, eight elderly people and my family coming, I'll never forget the moment at our, at our, we would have leadership meetings, which basically meant if you could breathe, show up, and we would normally have about five of us there. George and Evie were always there. And in one of the very first meetings, I said, you know, we're going to take this very slow. We are not going to change. We're going to kind of, you know, ease into things, take a few years, take some time, kind of get our, you know, there's only eight of us. There's no rush. We have, you know, we're okay. And uh, I was glad that I was not in Evie's arm distance. Her eyes grabbed me by the collar and looked me in the eye and said, brother, we're dying. We want to see what God's doing here. And everybody out there doesn't know Jesus. And it's not about us. We have peace. We need to do whatever we have to do to reach them. And they, um, they were driving force. You know, you talk about having a retired pastor in the church as a young pastor. They're, normal, they're, they're kind of advertised as your worst enemy. George was my best friend and my greatest advocate. And, and, and you know, that the church, that we are alive and God is moving in mighty ways here in George. Is, it's huge. Um, they're planning on being here next Sunday um, for the second service. But, you know, her dementia is, she's, she's definitely, her, her memory is not what it, is, what it was. And they're frail. And so it's very contingent. But hopefully, prayerfully, George will be here um, next Sunday. And I'll be here next Sunday. Um, then be praying for us as we, the following Sunday, we will actually be in Florence, Italy, um, suffering for Jesus. We will, we, <laughs> you know, I don't care about history. It's like, I have no, like, I'm really concerned about trying out the coffee there. Um, <laughs> and, and, but, but we're, we're, the point of going to Italy for us is we have missionaries that he's, he's from Italy and his wife is American and he has, they have a Bible college. They have a church. And they're one of our missionaries, and so we'll be worshiping in Italian, you know, that Sunday. And, and then we'll spend the rest of um, the next weekend, we'll be in, in, in Spain, which is vacation. It truly is vacation. But Anna, you know, my wife was a missionary kid in Spain, and so we're able to go back and see the old church and, and uh, just check in on people there. Um, God has blessed us with providing for this trip, and um, you'll be blessed. On two weeks from today, Dr. George Hare um, will be coming he is the chancellor of my seminary. It's 9-11. Um, he, will be, um, 
He will bring the word. Dr. Hare fits into a category of a very few people when it comes to marriage. Since marriage is on my mind. George and Evie are in the category. They've been married for 63 years. During the last service, Pete and Dolores have been married for 66 years. Um, George and, and Mrs. Hare, they've been married for uh, that many years, and he's been in the ministry for just as long. And so I guarantee you guys will be blessed by him. And then uh, Pat Kenny is coming from Calvary Chapel Lake, uh, Calvary Chapel Escondido. He is uh, the retired pastor there and is a dear, dear brother in the Lord, and you guys will be blessed by him. Um, and so, and I will be enjoying myself. And I thank you guys for letting me go. You know, it's going to be fun. So we're going to pray and we're going to dive into the story. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Um, Father, we ask that as we uh, continue our study through the Gospel of Luke and we get into this parable or the story of the Good Samaritan today, Lord, that only Luke records. Um, Father, we pray that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text that you would help us to understand what's being said here. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts. Lord, that your word would convict us, would guide us, would comfort us. Lord, would help us in our journey with you. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Um, Father, we ask that you would grow us in it. Lord, help us now as we work through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up. And put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leading him, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will. when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, um, for the story. We ask that you would help us now as we work our way through it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a pastor, one of the hardest things in the last few years that I've um, found that I wrestle with, that I have to work on in my own life in, in needing desperate wisdom is always when I hear from somebody that they want to talk to me because they have a question or I don't know the person and after the service, they say, I have a question I'd like to ask you. I think, oh, brother. Lord, I, I don't even know. Like, there's just so much. Like, the question is always just the tip of the iceberg. And I don't know how to, like, I don't always know how to answer it. But I'm always quick to, like, give my answer. Like, I always really want to give my, I want to take my years of studying the Bible and seminary, this big wheelbarrow I have of theological information. When somebody asks a question, I just want to take it and dump it on them. And then they go, whoa, what happened? Now, a couple times, Judy Couyers, who is in the first service, she is a person who loves asking me questions. And I love getting questions. Don't get me wrong. I love getting questions. But the first time I met Judy, you know, I didn't know her from anybody else. There's no relationship there. I don't know where she's coming from. And she had some questions. And I was like, man, like, I, I'm like, she's going to think I'm like 
tiptoeing all around her. She's like, I need to talk to you about dispensationalism. Like, what do you think about it? And I'm like, oh, like, well, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, where are you coming from? Like, what are your thoughts about dispensationalism? Like, let me, let me kind of, and it's not that I don't want to be honest about my answer about things, but sometimes these are like a trap door and I feel like I'm going to push the little lever and get trapped into something that I, what, like, okay, that's not the issue that we're talking about. And then six months ago, Judy calls me again and I was driving down into Escondido and the phone rang and I do the little bloop bloop, my Bluetooth, of course, because it's law. Hello. Hi, Judy. How are you doing? She says, I have a question for you. She's like, I'd like to know, like, what does it mean if um, a person's a fundamentalist and then they got saved after 20 years of being a fundamentalist? I'm like, oh, now, Judy, like, this is like a really harsh question. Like, you know, you know, Anna grew up as an independent fundamental Baptist. And so, you know, through my, like, knowing my wife, I've been introduced to, like, a lot of people who are currently independent fundamental Baptists. And they, like, people go hard on them, and there are people, there's sometimes that there's reason to go hard, and other, like, there are some people that are independent fundamental Baptists that are, like, really love the Lord and have a sweet disposition. And I'm kind of, like, tiptoeing, driving the car, going, like, and I, I started giving her my whole answer, and I get about 15 minutes into it, and I go, now, now Judy, what? Now, why are you asking this question? Like, what's the point? And she says, well, I'm in this play, and I'm supposed to be playing this person that's this. And I'm like, oh, Judy, you'll kill me. I'm, like, trying to tiptoe around you, trying to be, like, pastoral and sympathetic. And I'm like, they're obviously coming from the harsh Christian perspective, making fun of this group, that, like, it's all about relationship, religion with no relationship and heart. And I... And I'm like, could you have just told me that in the beginning? And the thing I love about Jesus is I go through the Gospels is he's brilliant. And now he has the edge because he's God. He created everybody he's addressing. He wrote the entire Bible. He knows everything, God's in everything. So you're not going to trick him. But what I noticed about him, because every person he talks to, he could slam dunk them with a bunch of information and knowledge. But almost all the time, Jesus responds to people with questions. He kind of digs a little bit deeper to the woman at the well. Oh, could you get me a glass of water? Sure. Why are you talking to me? Well, I can, uh, you give me water, but I can give you living water. Why don't you go get your husband? Oh, but I don't have a husband. What do you mean? Oh, oh you live with your boyfriend. And you've been married five times. Oh, oh okay. And then he, his point is just the person that's, Getting there, he wins the person, not the argument. Most times, not all the time. And so in today's story, Jesus is there, and this, uh, this lawyer, as Luke records, Matthew and all of the other Gospels, they'll refer to these, this type of person as a scribe, an expert in the law, one who people would go to if they had questions about how to interpret the Bible, how to apply the Bible, what does it mean in day-to-day life, how are we supposed to use this? This person was the expert. Nobody questioned them. But Luke always refers to these people as lawyers because they split the law over things to do. Luke was not a Jewish man. And so verse 25 reads, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. And so this lawyer, most people, most commentators say that most likely this guy was like a temple priest that they could go do their duty and then they would do their scribal work. They would continue and they would travel around. This guy stands up. He says, Jesus, I have a question for you. We know because Luke records it. Now, Luke is the only gospel writer that records a story. It's unique to him. And yet everybody knows this story. CNN will say, oh, and a good Samaritan stopped. Well, where'd you get that from? I don't know. We just say Good Samaritan. It comes from the story. And this lawyer stands up asking Jesus a question. We know that his intent is to test Jesus. His whole purpose as the Pharisees and the scribes as Jesus was ministering. They're building a legal case against Jesus so that they can crucify him. His whole question is to show that Jesus is contradicting the scriptures. To say that he's teaching against the law and the things that that God had revealed to them. And so he stands up and he says, Teacher, what shall I do to 
inherit eternal life? This is a great question. Like if you ask, like this seems like a pretty good question. This is far easier than like, what do you think about dispensationalism? Or what do you think about this? Or what do you think about women? Or what do you think about like just all kinds of hardball questions? This is a softball question. If somebody came to my front door or came to the church and said, Gunner, I have a question. I'd be all nervous. I normally go, well, and especially if it's like an appointment later on. Like if it's like, hey, can I meet you tomorrow or in three days to talk with you? I have some questions. Because I was such a hooligan when I was a kid, I like always think I'm in trouble. And I always get worried that like something's like I just and I'll always say, can you give me like, can you just give me a little heads up so I don't have to like stew in my juices? And if this is somebody, they say, oh, I want to know how to get eternal life. Oh, softball. Like if this guy asked me the question, what have we been trained to do as, as evangelical Protestant Christians? Romans Road. Like you guys know how horrible I am at memorizing verses. Like I'm, I, I can tell you about the Bible, but I often have to refer when it comes to like quoting it, I seize up. But even Romans Road, I know we go for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes you, my friend. You're in trouble because then we goes on to say for the wages of sin is death. You're separated from God. Your sin is brings condemnation. Oh, but the good news is that God demonstrated his love for you and that while yet, while yet you were a sinner, Christ died for you, loved you. And if you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Amen, right? That's, that's a like, now what's Jesus going to say? Is Jesus going to like fit into like our little program of doing stuff? Like that's a softball question. Jesus could totally give him the answer. But Jesus knows better. And I love this about Jesus. Jesus is going to ask him a question. What I learned from this. See, I was raised Catholic. I always get that. I'm not even looking up right now because I don't really want to know. But some of you I know. Like normally when you say I was raised Catholic, I get that like. There's like the there's like the wink like we're in the fraternity. Amen, brother. I'm right there with you. I know exactly where you're like. I. But see, I wasn't one of the ones that left the, left. The, I did not leave the Catholic Church for any sort of theological reason. I went to boot camp. The first Sunday of boot camp, they said. You can go to any religious service you want to. You can go to all of the religious services. Said, okay, well, I'm like, well, I'm Catholic, so I'm going to go to the Catholic one. Like, well, you can go to all of them. You can do whatever you want, but if you're not going to church, you have to stay back and clean. And I was like, sign me up for all, all of them. <laughs> so I was kind of eager, you know, like it was boot camp. I was 18. I was like, I was ready to get a little bit of God in boot camp. And, and I wasn't really a practicing Catholic, but I was, you know, I mean, I was raised Catholic. That's just what you are. You do to the Catholic service. And so I thought, oh, church will be fascinating. And so the Catholic service, the seven o'clock service is the ticket because there's no music there and it's shorter. And so you can get like, it's like condensed church. Like you can be in and out in 45 minutes. And so then I'm like, I went to church and it was like, oh man, I can barely stay awake for this. And then it was like church dismissed, and I just kept sitting there because they just rotate the building. And then the Protestant service started, and it was like, man, they had like a bunch of guys that were in boot camp, like up on stage singing, people clapping lively. I'm like, this is like a concert. This is kind of cool. And then the, the guy, you know, I'm like, is this the priest, or who is this guy? Like, this guy starts talking from the Bible. I don't know that I realized that he was talking from the Bible at the time. But like what he said, it was clear. It made sense. It was pra- like I totally understood. I'm like, this is pretty cool. And then the next Sunday, they're like, okay, what services are you guys going to? And I'm like, I'm doing them all again. It's like, no, 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 that's only the first. You can only choose one. Like that's the first Sunday. The second Sunday, you can only do one. And so then I started going to the Protestant service, totally out of like, 
because the first one was boring. The second one was later and more um, meaningful to me. But then as, as I kind of left Catholicism and started swimming in Protestant circles, what I noticed real quickly is that Protestants are very good at slamming Catholics. Huge. You could get a Catholic person that walks in and says, oh, hi, you know, I go to Catholic church. And then the Protestant will lay their theological wheelbarrow of Vatican teaching and all the heirs of the Vatican, which there are plenty of heirs in the Vatican. The Catholic church itself has many, many problems if you care what the Bible says. There's many, many difficulties. But they'll dump all of these, and then they're like, well, I don't, like, as a former Catholic, just a word of advice, like, most Catholics don't believe what the, the, the Vatican believes anyhow. So, 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 so I've learned that in dealing with Catholics, I don't start dumping all my knowledge about the Vatican, which I had no idea as a Catholic, but as a Protestant, I suddenly have all this information about the Vatican. I've learned to kind of say, now, what do you believe about God? Where, what do you think about things? And do you know how much more successful I've been in sharing Christ with Catholics going from that vantage point? But anytime, like the front door, you look out, oh man, it's, why now, guys? You know, the two ties and the white shirt, the Mormon, and I love Mormon kids. I love Mormons, great people. But I'm like normally in a rush, and so I just vomit all of my theology on them about how they're wrong. And then the sweet guys, we have so much to learn from them. And they say, well, thank you very much, sir. I'm not here to argue with you, but is there anything I can do for you? Could we vacuum your house or like paint your house or, you know, change your oil or anything like that? And I'm like, I am such a jerk, you know, <laughs> like, no, thanks guys. Have a great day. All the time. I like the, that if I just followed Jesus I would stay out of so much trouble. And so here's this lawyer, this expert in the law, the one who knew everything about the Bible. He'd memorized the first five books of the Bible, dealing from Genesis to Malachi. He could tell you in large portions, quoting and dialoguing over it without the Bible being opened. He asked Jesus a very good question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he says, well, bud, you're an expert. You know the whole law. You're well versed in it. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? What's your take? As you've studied, you spent your whole life studying the scriptures. You're professional in how you teach and train and lead the people of God. Now, what's your spin? How do you interpret it? Brilliant, Jesus, brilliant. Like, I, I wish I could be more like him. And so he answered in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. So the first part, he quotes the Shema. It's not the El Shema. That's my Spanglish going around. It's the Shema, but I take a little Spanish and I like El Shema. Sounds pretty cool to me. But this comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's really Deuteronomy 6 5. But if you want to flip over there in the beginning of the Bible and we'll read it, this is like the governing verse of, of Israel. Still to this day. So Deuteronomy, it's in the beginning there. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to show, wait, diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them. When you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is like the ver so much here. 
the Lord our God. The Lord is one. There's only one God. We're to love. I'm not going to really go into the whole splicing of heart, soul, mind. The, the idea of this verse is anything and everything that you can bring to the table, bring it to the table and love God with that sort of passion. When you go to Israel or any Jewish person's house on the front, you'll see a little box on the left of the door, like nailed in about eye level. It's called a mezuzah or something like that. And inside of that little box is this scroll, this passage, the Shema. Everywhere you go in Israel, every Jewish home, you see a little box. It's a reminder. And the first part he says, he's like, listen, when I look at, when I read the whole Old Testament, when I see the scriptures, if I want eternal life, the first thing I see with everything I have, with all that I am, with all my might, I'm to love God, to love God with that intensity. And then the second part comes from Leviticus chapter 19. If you want to go towards the front of the Bible, you'll hit Leviticus. It's the part in your Bible where all the pages are still stuck together. (laughs) And in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, we'll read this. It says, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so this man responds to Jesus. Jesus says, okay, how do you interpret the law? How do you think you get eternal life? The guy basically says, love God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might, with your cognitive everything love god and then love your neighbor as yourself love people around you as yourself that's my answer now if i was in jesus's situation and i made it far enough to not dump my theological wheelbarrow on this guy's head and he responded like this how would i respond how would we grade this guy's answer the Protestant world, I think, would probably say, uh-uh-uh. You just said, love God with everything you have and do good works to your... You're a works-based theology. You can't get to heaven through, through doing works of loving God and loving your neighbor. It's by grace through faith alone. Amen? Amen. It's, we get saved. it's okay to say, yeah. Like, we're totally saved by grace. Amen. It's good. But the more I go through the Gospels, the more troubled I am by Jesus' responses to people. Because Jesus challenges my understanding of Christianity over and over again. And that's a problem because Jesus is never wrong. And how does Jesus respond? He essentially... You're the man. You got it. You answered correctly. And then he quotes from Leviticus... Chapter 18, verse 5. Since we're right here, so Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. It says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So this guy says, If I want eternal life, what I'm to do is to love God with everything I am, love my neighbors myself. And Jesus says, You nailed it. Good job. Good job. And I think, Jesus, what about this whole, like, there's plenty of, we can't do it. It's by, by faith alone. Like, what, what about all of the, like, the stuff we read about us being unable to do it on our own? Unable to being able to do this stuff. As I was looking at this, see, the guy, this lawyer, this scribe, this priest, is going 
to respond with another question, which Luke tells us that he wants to justify himself, meaning he gives his answer. Jesus says, you got it right. Now, this guy was trying to set Jesus up for a fall, and Jesus is kind of going along with him. And he wants to justify himself, which means, how can I, in my own strength, stand before God justified that there's no condemnation on me, that I'm acceptable based on my own merit? He's going to do a follow-up question, which don't start questioning, like, don't put Jesus to the test. You're only going to dig yourself up into it like a huge hole. As I was reflecting on this man standing before Jesus, asking these questions, I started thinking to myself, it was before the wedding, so my mind is a dangerous place to go. I've warned you guys before. And I start thinking about a little video that Grace and I made about two years ago. I thought about showing it, but it's just such a nightmare sometimes with not getting home till midnight last night. So it's on the church website. If you go to the blog or if you're on Facebook, you'll find the video there. And two, you know, Grace is, she's five and a half right now. And so she must have been about three or, or three or early four. And we're sitting on the table or on the chair and the, the laptop is on the table with the camera. And I start videoing herself so she can see herself on the screen and we're practicing winking, you know, winking. I can't do the other eye. Like, I'm le- so left-eye dominant, I cannot do it. And so we're on the screen, and I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, Grace, how is your winking coming? And so she's trying to, her whole face, you know, like doing this number. But at the same time, she wants to watch herself on the screen. So she's like, and like totally, cons- like, it's just, she's a mess. And so funny. And as a parent, when you're doing this, because I'm sitting right there. See, when you're a parent and your kids are saying something, watch parents or anybody with little kids. They're in the background, like, like, like a mannequin, like pretending like they're a mannequin. And see, through video, like I've realized we do this. And so I'm like in the background trying to stay perfectly still, not practicing my winking, because I know that I'm going to be the weird looking guy in the background. And so finally, after about 30 seconds, I, how's it going, Grace? She's like, I can't do it. And you know what? This lawyer could have taken a lesson from Grace. See, he, he says to love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might, with all your mind. And to love your neighbors yourself. See, because the heaven-bound person will do those things. But see, we're told in Galatians that the law was given as a schoolmaster, a teacher to show us our inability to do this stuff. Not that we're not supposed to do it. And Jesus doesn't nullify it. When I look at the New Testament, Jesus only makes stuff like way harder. And Jesus says, you got it. You nailed it. And I remember the first day we landed in, we landed in Israel, went to Israel last year. And the first day, you get there kind of in the afternoon, evening, so you're kind of a zombie. You just go to bed. But we woke up in the morning, and I noticed all the little boxes. And the pastor that was leading the trip, we're in like the bus, and we'd have like morning devotions. And the first thing he said to us, it was like our theme through the trip is we read from the Shema. And he explained what was in those little boxes. And he said, guys, for your whole trip in Israel, whenever you see those little boxes, realize that that's what's written in there. And he's like, how many of you guys feel comfortable saying, like, before God, do you think you're succeeding? Like, with loving God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your every, everything that you are and loving your neighbor? Do you know how many people raise their hand on the bus? None. And he's like, guys, that's right, because we can't do this in our own strength. We need Christ desperately working in our lives if we're going to fulfill any of that. And so he said, while your whole time in Israel, as you're walking through the hotel doors, as you're seeing those little boxes, just be praying, Lord, help me to help me to live this out. Help me to love you with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength, and to love others as I want to be loved. 
And it was powerful because you turn the hotel, like you go down the hallway and there's like a gazillion rooms and all you see is those little boxes the whole way down. And when Jesus said to this, to this lawyer, he of all people should know that he couldn't maintain the law. Like I'm supposed to love God with everything? Yeah, right? Like how, how, like how in this life in my own selfishness, how does this like work itself out? And to love my neighbor when I can barely stand everybody in my family? I mean, seriously, like we got a, I got a way better laugh during the last service on that one. It's okay to laugh on that one. Because, see, it's super easy to like people you don't know because you don't know them. But when you start knowing people, you know everything about them. And the deeper the relationship, you know all their garbage. You know all their junk. You know all their, their inadequacies, their, their uh, stuff they do. And if you're married, it's all the stuff that attracted to you that begins to annoy you after you marry them. Everything before you're married. Oh, it's so cute how he, like, talks with his mouth full. It's adorable. <laughs> then you get married, and you're like, why does he always talk with his mouth full? You thought it was cute during your premarital counseling. Like, what's, you know? It's hard to like people and to love people that we know sometimes. And this guy like Gray should have said, I can't do this. But he wants to justify himself. So he says, Lord, now who's my neighbor? According to your yoke, which is your teaching, you're a rabbi. What's your interpretation of neighbor? And see, if you're still in Leviticus 19, in verse 17, it says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen. In your heart, you may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And so they took that phrase, fellow countrymen, and the scribes and the Pharisees had interpreted this in such a way that your countrymen, your fellow countrymen, broke down to being your folk. This is your family, your friends that you hang out with, those that you go to synagogue with. That's your neighbor. Now, every rabbi would have a different teaching of where that boundary was drawn. And so this guy asking Jesus, now, what's your yoke exactly? Because I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I, I really have the whole loving God with everything. I mean, I'm a scribe. I'm a, I do everything for the Lord. There's not much more you can do. Now, the loving your neighbor, it depends on who you ask. According to my teaching, I've got it pretty good. Now, according to your teaching, where's that line of the people that I have to love like myself? And Jesus, instead of just laying out his line, he's going to tell a powerful story of this good Samaritan. And then make the guy answer the question. Genius, Jesus, genius. I'm not God. I can't do this. I'll, like I just wish I could even get like at 1% of what, through his strength, sometimes we get it. And so Jesus begins telling this, this story, this sort of parable. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, here's a map. I don't have my pointer. This is the Dead Sea. We have a river that runs from north to south, the Jordan River. At, way up north, there's the, um, the Sea of Galilee. Um, right here is Jerusalem, and then there's Jericho. It's a 17-mile distance between Jerusalem and Jericho, and there's a 3,000-foot elevation drop between these two distances. From the turn on Palomar Mountain, that's a 20 miles, and that's about 6,000 feet. We're about 1,500 feet here, which... I went to public school. It's always the joke, you know, but it, 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 it's 4,500 feet. And so, but if you went 17 miles, you're going to be pretty close to 3,000 foot. So you don't go all the way to the top. You stop a little bit before. I mean, to show you that this is true elevation. This story that he's setting up here was a very dangerous road. This is before call boxes. This is before cell phones. This is before OnStar. This is... That you are on your own making this journey. There were robbers. This was a key place to hijack people, to beat them up, to take them, leave them for dead, take all of their stuff. Treacherous. 
Earlier in Luke, we already covered when Jesus was 12 years old. Remember, they went to the temple for one of the ceremonies. 12 years old, a boy could either travel with the women or the men. They would travel with their whole community to be safe. They get down to the bottom and Mary starts looking around. Where's Jesus? A little panic picks up, but no, he's probably just back with Joseph. Goes back to where the men are traveling or vice versa. I I might be mixing it up. But she goes and she sees Joseph. Hey, have you seen Jesus? No, I thought he was with you. Then they make the journey all the way back to Jerusalem. Three days later, they go to the temple and there's Jesus sitting amongst like the power hitters of the day, discussing theology with them. And Mary, I'm going to kill you, Jesus. What were you thinking? Do you know what you put us through? It's because this road is dangerous. And in this story, we don't get anything about this man. It just says a man. We don't know if he's Jewish. We don't know if he's a Pharisee. We don't know if he's a Samaritan. We don't know anything about him. He's just sort of nothing, which I think is intentional. God doesn't want us to know because we're just people. We tend to splice ourselves into all sorts of categories and elevate some categories higher than other categories. This is just a man. This, there's nothing important about this guy other than a bunch of robbers beat him up. And we're told in verse 31, and by chance, a priest, which is interesting because some speculate that the man that's asking the question could be a priest. And so, so Jesus in telling the stories is putting people that this guy could be one of these people or would definitely be somebody that he would identify with or respect as a scribe, the priest or a Levite. These are people in his camp. And so he says, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. See, making the journey down. Here is a guy beat up, naked, unidentifiable, that when they left him, they thought he was dead. Ugly, horrible. When you see sin explode at this level, it's horrifying to... Like for most people, I would say for 99% of humanity, not to intervene and to help this person, like you would have to fight your nature not to like give some sort of first aid. And we're told that here this priest sees the guy, identifies that he's not his neighbor. It's not somebody that is in his his family and his group of friends and his synagogue from his community. See, we've already addressed this in Luke chapter six, when Jesus says, I tell you to love your enemy. He's, he's getting into this area. And so this priest, when he sees this battered person, he goes to the other side of the road and he keeps walking. Then a second guy, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, this is a Levite, another guy. How would he respond? Same thing goes around. Like, this is pretty embarrassing. Like, if I'm here and I'm somebody that would identify with those two people and I hear this response, am I getting embarrassed or am I thinking, no, I totally understand. I would do the same thing. And then verse 33, the part that will get this lawyer to cringe, but a Samaritan. A Samaritan was hated by the Jewish people. And it went both ways. They hated the Jewish people. They were were mixed. They were a Jewish person that had married and had children with, with Gentiles, with those outside of the faith. They were viewed as despicable, as 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 just as as their relations with one another went. And then spiritually they were just as despicable. So on two different levels they hated each other. A horrible sort of racism. But this Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon this guy. And my guess is, statistically speaking, but it doesn't really matter, my, my two cents doesn't matter on this one, I would say that this guy that got beat up is a Jew. And so two Jewish priests and Levites, like a, a, a priest and a Levite, passed by a fellow brother, 
But a Samaritan who's supposed to hate the Jewish people comes by. And when he saw him, he felt compassion for this person. That here he is half dead. Somebody took all of his clothes, beat him up. Has sympathy for him. And so he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds and he poured oil and wine on them. He pulls out his first aid kit. The oil is ointment. The the wine, putting wine on him would be an antiseptic to clean his wounds out. He he busts out his first aid kit and then he's going to throw him into his car or onto his beast. I wish I had a beast because that just sounds way cooler than, hey, you want to ride? You want to ride my beast? So he threw him on his beast and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. So here he goes down to the hotel. He gets a room. He puts him in bed. He cares for him. He's the nurse to this person. On the next day, he took out two denarii because he has he has to continue his journey. He can't stay here. So he takes out money. He goes to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. He says, listen, I'll give you two denarii now. That should, co- that should cover for the medical expenses and his needs before he can move on. But even if it's not enough, please continue to treat this man and care for him. And I'll be back next week or in a few days or whenever he was going to be back. Give me the bill. I have his cost totally. And so from this Samaritan, this man who was looked down upon by the Jewish people, we see that he has compassion. He invested money, his resources in loving on this person and caring for him. If I was to turn this into a modern day parable, I've been thinking about this. And it would go something like this. If Jesus came to our church or in our group of people and said, somebody stands up, hey, I want eternal life. How do I get it? What do you think? I think to love God with all my heart, with all my strength, with all my mind, with all my fire, everything I have to love God and to love my neighbor like myself. Jesus says, hey, you nailed it. Now, now who's my neighbor, Jesus? Jesus says, okay. There's a guy that's up on Palomar Mountain. He drives down. Some man drives down Palomar Mountain. He gets to Colgrade and Miller Road, the intersection right here. A car comes out and T-bones this person. Horrible, horrible accident. And it's a hit and run. The guy leaves. No cell phones. No No call boxes. The guy is there dying. He looks dead. Now, a Baptist pastor comes cruising down the hill. (laughs) I got to put myself in the story. Why not? You know, this is how I get convicted. Baptist pastor comes rolling down the hill, sees the accident. Looks through his window, looks really carefully. He's a chaplain with the Escondido Police Department, so he's really good at identifying these situations. He quickly comes to the conclusion that it's not his family, it's not anybody from his church. So he pops off his headlights and he takes a right turn on Miller to avoid the situation. Now the Catholic priest comes, gets to the location, looks into the car, sees it's not any of his own family or anybody from his church. So he too goes down Miller Road. And just because it makes a better joke, there's totally not three people in the Bible, but you have to throw a rabbi in here, right? Rabbi comes and does the same thing. So there's a priest, a Baptist pastor, and a rabbi. All three of them ignore this guy. And then there's an undocumented, illegal migrant worker on his bicycle riding his bike down Colgrade. And he sees this accident. He stops his bike. He lays it down. He goes to the guy. He does first aid, CPR, pulls him out of the car, use every ounce of his resources because he doesn't have many. He gets this guy to the hospital, treats him with everything that he has. That hurts. I hope it hurts. Because I think that's what Jesus would say to us. And then in the last service, I said, you know, I'm all for like our sovereign nation and politics and like yada, yada, yada. But then do you guys realize how many tribal people we have in our church? And I didn't, nobody did it audibly, but in my mind, I heard a, <clears throat> go on, we 
kind of, if you take our history back, uh, like I'm a, I'm totally a patriot. I was a Navy SEAL for 12 years. But if you take our history back, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in our church who are in their sovereign nation (laughs) would say, you know, the history of things, you know, like, but, but to keep it on track from a biblical perspective, every single person is a child of God. Jesus died and bled and paid for each one of us. And yet we criticize, we judge. And I hope and pray that every time you drive down our roads and you see the guy on the bicycle or standing on the corner and you think, and I hope you don't, something negative about that person. I hope God zaps you with, that's somebody I died for. That's somebody I bled for. That's somebody I want to see in heaven. And I love how Jesus responds. He tells this powerful story. He didn't give you that lecture. That was like, you know what I mean? Like he may have, but that was me on a rabbit trail. But he tells the story about this illegal person. And he looks to the person asking a question. He says, now, who, which one of these three people, four people in my story, was a true neighbor? And I could just see this lawyer. Like, he doesn't want to say the Samaritan because they hate Samaritans. But it's obvious that the one person who was a neighbor in the story... <laughs> And it doesn't say, I guess, but I hear this guy kind of shaking his head. See, you don't try to pigeonhole Jesus, thinking that you can trick him with theology. He's God. He writes the rule book. He created you. He knows every thought, everything that you're thinking. He knows the heart of the issue, and he knows how to get you to learn a lesson. And this guy said, the one who showed mercy toward him and jesus in many ways was checkmate you know that when you're playing chess and you hear checkmate and it wasn't a mistake like it was like aha no that's only check i'm out of this like this is like checkmate there is no wiggle room jesus took the law and he didn't nullify it he fulfilled it and the law of christ is far more see here when jesus said you got it he said to love your brothers yourself. But if you go to John 13, 34, on the night which Jesus was betrayed, as he's going to the cross, he looked at the apostles and he said, you've heard it said to love your neighbors yourself, but I give you a new command to love your neighbor as I loved you. Think about that one for a second. See, Jesus stepped out of heaven. He humbled himself. He being God became man. He lived a perfect life. Yet he with new, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Every sin that we, that you, that I, that everybody in, in history has ever committed was placed upon Jesus. He suffered. He died. He was buried. Not because he had to, but because he loved us. And he says, that's how I want you to treat your neighbor. When I look at the Old Testament, it's kind of like, oh, well, loving your neighbors yourself, that sure seems a whole lot easier. And then as I, we kind of conclude, as we end this in time for the softball game, Bob, we're good to go. I have 17 minutes, but I really only need about five. When you start looking, like, how do we love Like Jesus, like how do we love our neighbor? How do we love others? Like Jesus loved me? I don't know about you, but I feel like Grace trying to wink saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. And that's right where Jesus wants us to be. The apostle of love who was really called the son of thunder. The guy who just in chapter 9, the apostle John who asked with the Samaritans, Hey, they won't let us stay. Jesus, can I flip the switch and pray the atomic prayer and call down fire from heaven and burn them to a crisp? That same guy in in all of the John epistles said we need to abide in Christ. We need to love him so that we can love others. And it doesn't happen overnight. And as I look at you, you know, there's that joke, I'd rather be with you guys than the finest people on earth that kind of that dig but when i look at gunner from 20 years ago there is no like looking at the people in the church there is no way i'd like there's probably about three of you that i'd want to hang out with like seriously like it's just not like that's gunner then i'm not saying that today today 
Like, I wouldn't miss a Sunday. Like, I don't miss church because I love being in fellowship. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. You're, you're people that are so different and so like family. None of us are perfect. But you know what? God has changed my heart. God has helped me to love him, and he's helped me to love other people. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's like the stock market that goes all over the place, up and down. But every good financial advisor will pull out a chart. Let's look at from the 40s all the way to 2010. Let's look at 70 years. And while there's great dips in the stock market over the big picture, there's huge growth. Even in the midst of down days, there's growth. And God is doing a work that we don't see, but over the course of our life, change is happening. And I so pray that I would have a little bit of Jesus' wisdom. So we need the word. So when people come to us and they ask questions, we don't just take our wheelbarrow and dump it on them. And when we dialogue with people, the greatest thing I learned was from my father-in-law, who's the pastor that I go to most in the ministry. See, I'm so stinking competitive. I hate it. I mean, I love it, but I hate it. Like, especially as a pastor, when you're like, take, like, they're still giving me a hard time for taking out Nathaniel at the softball game, which I plead. I slipped and I was just trying to protect him, but nobody believes it. See, he said something when you're arguing or discussing with people the things of the word of God. Your motivation is never to win. Your motivation is to find the truth. It changes everything. See, when you're talking to the kids that knock on your door and you start asking a question, see, this is God's word. God is God. He's revealed this to us. This is truth. This is not truth if you win the argument and not truth if you lose the argument or truth if you speak very eloquently or not truth if you preach a bad sermon. This is the truth. And so if my heart and sharing is submitted to this, to saying, what's the truth? I've been wrong all like so many times in my life. But when my intention is to find the truth, then I don't have to get all emotional to win the argument. Jesus, the truth is the truth. This lawyer who was an expert in everything, he didn't have to like the word is the word. And so we can be like him. And I love the fact we're not supposed to test Jesus. But Jesus can pass every test that we throw at him. There's no test that he can't pass because he is authentic. He is God. And my prayer is that we would become the people that are heaven bound, that love God with everything that we have. And out of our love for God, it, it, it creates this love for people. That we see people through God's eyes. That we see them through pe- as people who Jesus died for and loved and is using us as ambassadors. And Father, I do thank you and praise you for this day. Father, I thank you for your, your nature. Father, I thank you that you've shown us yourself um, through a perfect a picture of Christ on earth, Lord, to see the his gentleness, his compassion, his wisdom, to see that he didn't seek to win the argument with this man, but to, but to attempt to win this man. And Father, we thank you that you work in this way, that you convict us, you guide us along, you allow us to feel like we're reaching these conclusions based upon, like as you lead us, we sort of come to understand. And so, Father, I pray that as we are, are walking this life, Lord, as we go about it, as we're growing in our relationship with you, and our passion for you grows, and our compassion for the people around us grow, and our heart for their lostness grows, Lord, Father, I pray that you would help us to funnel our passion with wisdom, Lord, that we would learn to ask questions, that we would learn not to be afraid um, to allow people to speak and to share. And as we dialogue, Lord, that you would help us to ask questions um, that surface the real issues. 
so that people would be able to come into contact with you, the living God. Father, we are so helpless. We are so desperate for you. We can't do it. We need your help, Lord. Lord, I know I want to grow in my love for you, and I have a long way to go, and I have a long way to go with loving my neighbor. But Lord, I thank you that your loving kindness endures forever, that you are working in us and through us. For you are good, and all the glory goes to you. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.